0: Welcome to the New Freedom Church podcast. This podcast will help you grow deeper in your faith through weekly 30-minute talks. If you haven't already done so, go ahead and hit that subscribe button so you get each new episode as it's released. Now sit back and relax as God speaks to you through this message. This year is the year of the good news here at New Freedom Church. And God gave us good news. We call it the gospel. And there are four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Today we're going to look at a story out of the gospel writer according to Luke. Now the word gospel, literally translated, means good news. But here is the definition of gospel, the best that I have ever seen it. And it is this, that the crucified Jesus has been resurrected, and he has launched new creation of which he is now Lord and we can be participators in with this new creation. And all who have said yes to the claims of Christ on their life have now entered into this inaugurated kingdom that God has begun and launched a brand new creation and a brand new kingdom in our lives. And we are participants working out this new creation until the day which he comes again and sets all things to right. Can somebody say, hallelujah, amen, God is good. In the gospel of Luke today, chapter 7, we're going to look at a a story here that Jesus gives us this word picture about what it looks like to have the die cast and a contrast made between two sides. Have you ever been faced with a dilemma? Have you ever found yourself in a place where it looks on the surface as though there's no win to this situation? Have you ever found yourself confronted with something that if you go to the right, you're going to get criticized? If you turn to the left, you're going to get criticized? And if you go straight ahead, you're surely going to dash your foot against a rock. There seems to be a no-win situation. Jesus is confronted in Luke chapter 7 with such a case. And what we're going to find him do is that he demonstrates and illustrates for us how to navigate these no-win situations and yet stay faithful to God our Father. How many many would like to know how to do that today? I would like to know how to do that. So turn with me to Luke chapter 7, and we're going to start reading in verses 33 and 35. It says, these are Jesus' words now. He's, He's talking to them. He's saying, now John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. He's talking to the townsfolk. He's talking to the synagogue, the rulers and religious authorities of his day. He's saying, John the Baptist, and he just gave a a great telling of how all John had the credentials and and how great a a person that John the Baptist was. He said, well, John was like a purist. He came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he's a demon. Verse 34, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look, a glutton, a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Somebody say, a friend of sinners. Jesus is still today a friend of sinners. Verse 35, but wisdom is justified by all of her children. Now, this launches into Jesus navigating a seemingly no-win situation. In other words, John the Baptist was a purist. He was what we would call a conservative. He towed the line. He didn't eat bread, he didn't drink wine, and you said that he was a demon. Jesus would, in their account, look as though he was a liberal. He is drinking uh, with those who are uh, wine bibbers. Now, it doesn't mean that he participated in their sin, but he certainly was at the tavern with them. Jesus was right there in their midst while they're doing the things which the world would say, oh, my goodness, Jesus should never go in a place like that. Listen, you and I have taken Jesus in some places he shouldn't have been, and I'm so glad that he was there because I can stand to testify that I'm here today because he was there that, that day. Amen. And Jesus is saying, no, you can't have this both ways, but apparently you're trying to have it both ways. Because John was a purist. He didn't do any of those things which you said were of the contrary and, and not able to do, but, but now Jesus said, now I am the one, I'm eating and I'm, I'm with you and I'm, I'm walking this, this same path. And you say that I am a friend of sinners, which really in, in actuality wasn't really a slam, was it? That's probably a pretty good thing, that Jesus was a friend of sinners and that he convorted with tax collectors. He was availing himself to the people of his day that were of the lowest rung of society. He was making himself accessible, God tabernacling with us, as John tells us, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He made his abode with us. He condescend all the way down from glory to come and be in the likeness of man, And while he was in the flesh, he did not sin. He was perfect in all of his ways. And we we have a hard time grasping how this can be. But Jesus is saying, this is exactly the purpose and the reason that I came is so that you can identify with me and I identify with you. And Jesus was in this no-win situation. He was criticized, whether on the right Or on the left. And I would say to you today if you find yourself criticized by both the political right and the political left, you probably are about in the middle of the road, and that's okay. It's okay to walk in such a way that people from either extreme side would want to cast a stone at you. Jesus did this very thing, yet he had absolute truth and grace. He was full of truth and full of grace. But what happens next, nobody sees coming. Jesus is now declared to be a friend of sinners, someone who would travel with tax collectors in the lowest rung of society, but now he gets an invite to a prominent man's home. He gets an invite from a Pharisee. At first we don't see his name, but later on we find out exactly who he is, and it's in Luke 7 and 36. Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house, and he sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was what? A Sinner, when she knew that Jesus was at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flax of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him, weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed him with fragrant oil. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself. You ever had these internal conversations? Now, the Pharisee, it says, spoke to himself. He, he's thinking on the inside. He may have uttered it quietly, but here's what he says. This man, if he were a prophet, he would know who and what manner of woman that is touching him, for she is a sinner. She's a sinner. The gospel writer identifies her as a sinner. Jesus already has been declared to be a friend of sinners. And now, the elite of the day, this Pharisee also knew that she was a townswoman, that she was a sinner. And what I gleaned from this just at first brush is that the outward appearances cannot possibly tell us all that we need to know about something in life. We are guilty oftentimes of judging a book by the cover, are we not? We are guilty of measuring up someone from the outside, the way that they appear, the way that they look, maybe the speech that they have, the way they talk, where they come from. We want to measure people up by their pedigree, their education, their career choices, the the places that they belong to, their affiliations. And we, we get this facade of what someone is all about based upon what we know of them and what they tell us about them. But at quick glance, we can see that everything on the surface cannot possibly tell you everything you need to know. I remember several years ago, we were traveling, and as a family, we flew into uh, LAX airport, and we had just a, a short drive, what we thought would be about an hour and a half to uh, our stay in, in Arizona. We were, we were just going to fly into the biggest airport we could, the, the best deal, and we were going we to drive over. Uh, Little did we know that that hour and a half trip was going to take us over four hours because LA traffic was bumper to bumper for probably 30 miles, which seemed like a lifetime. And after stop and go, stop and go for about two hours, finally, Holly looks at me and she says, I'm going to get sick. The kids are already crying. The kids were little at that time. We need to pull off here. Just as soon as you can find a place, we need to pull off. We need to stop. We need to stretch our legs and rest a little bit. And I was ready to. You know, you get that little crink of your neck and you're like, oh, I just want to get out of this car. Okay, that's where we were. We go into this McDonald's, and we, we get something to eat, and Caden is about to get sick. I mean, she probably had motion sickness from all the stopping and starting, stopping and starting in the car, and she's probably eight or nine years old at this time. And so uh, I don't know what to do with her. We try to give her something to eat. That wasn't going to work. It was going to get worse. And, and out of the corner of my eye comes walking up this lady. She's shuffling along, and out of her fanny pack in the front, you know those little pouches, zipper pouches? Some of you still, you brought fanny pack back. <laughs> <laughs> pretty convenient. She, she unzips her fanny pack and she pulls out this little Dramamine, like, like, you know, it's a little motion sickness package. Now, mind you, the lady looks homeless. I think that she probably was homeless. I, I don't really know. But in that moment, I was so desperate to get something to calm the stomach of a child that is about to do something much worse than you want to have in the lobby of McDonald's. I went ahead and I ripped open that packet. I looked at Holly real quick. She's just like, yeah. And so we give give Caden the packet and the little pill. And and she was great. In like 10 minutes, she she was great. I looked around just after giving Caden that pill. I looked around to thank the lady. She was gone. She was gone. She was nowhere to be found. And then the thought occurred to me, what if that was poison? What if that was a drug? I don't even know this lady. Why did I do that? That was irresponsible. As a parent, I'm going to give my child something that uh, the street lady, a bum, a homeless lady. is just gave me out of her pouch. But there was something about the peace of just giving it to her. Like, I, I just trusted in that moment. I don't even know why. And then I, I really started thinking about it. And thinking, I think, I shouldn't have trusted that much. But then I wanted to thank the lady, and she was gone. And I, Holly, I said, Holly, did you see where she went? Where did that lady go? I, I don't know. i have not seen her again. We looked, she couldn't find her anywhere. To this day, we've talked about this. I really believe it could be, the scripture says that we entertain angels unaware. It could have been that she was sent for just that moment, for just that time. Amen. And judging by the outward appearance, the pride of a parent's heart would have said, oh no, dirty lady, Homeless-looking lady shuffling over to give me something. I don't want that from you, but there is much more than what we can see on the surface so often in circumstances of our lives. In 1848, this country experienced something that, that other countries had, but not to this level, not to this magnitude. In the new territory of California in 1848, there was discovered a gold rush, And it quickly caused people to pack up everything that they owned and set off to make it rich and to strike it big on the West Coast. They wanted to go to the West Coast where everybody apparently was finding gold. History tells us that it took about five months to, to travel from the East Coast of the United States to the West Coast in order to go ahead and put a shovel in the dirt, get a pan and go into a river and start to try to find this so easy to find gold what we find really happened is that the merchants and the mercantiles, they were the real winners of the gold rush because very few people and settlers who went actually found any gold measurable enough to make them a wealth, to make them a fortune. And yet to this day, you can go to places in this country, you can go to places in California, and you can look into a stream and you can see this shiny glittering stuff that if you would reach down and you would, you would put a little bit of it, you say, look, I've got gold. And that's what the original settlers thought too. And they would take all of these little flakes to the weigh station and then they would be laughed at because they didn't have gold. They found pyrite. We call it fool's gold. It looks like gold. It glitters like gold. It feels like gold. It has the same kind of substance, but it is not gold. Its, its properties are not as pure. It is not the same thing. And many times in life, we will look on the outward of something, and all that glitters is not gold. And we get fooled by the appearance. We can get fooled because someone looks good on the outside. Like this Pharisee in the story that Jesus is telling us, he looks good on the outside, And all the townspeople were convinced that he had his act together, what he did on the outside. He had all of his ducks in a row. He had everything just right on the outside. But on the inside, he was stinking. On the inside, he was dying. On the inside, there were some things about his judgment, some things about his assessment of other people that he was not thinking properly. He was not applying what he should be applying to God in his life. And this woman who is identified as a sinner, dirty, unworthy, She is the very one that is the hero of this story. But let's read on. Let's see what the woman did. So the woman comes up to Jesus, knowing that he was in the house. She determined that she was going to press on through and she was going to go uninvited. You know, it's been said that real friends show up uninvited. She was going to go uninvited to a dinner party and not just be there to dine. She was going to be there to serve. And that's exactly what we see take place in an extravagant display of worship. But here's what you need to know extravagant worship is both beautiful and messy. Extravagant worship is beautiful and messy. It looks uncontained, it can look uncontrolled. It can make us uncomfortable when someone with reckless abandon comes before God and they begin to worship and pour out their offering unto the Lord and offering the fruit of their lips, giving thanks unto his name. And we see that what happens here is accounted three times in the scriptures. There are three accounts of a woman coming to Jesus And anointing him with oil this is just one of those accounts but it specifies what this worship was all about and what it looked like the first thing that we see is that she brought an alabaster box filled with precious and fragrant oil it was an ointment and an oil that was costly of her day and it was also contained in something that was very valuable you know you don't just put something valuable in any old box You put it in a safe today. Today we put stuff that's valuable inside of a safe, or we put it in a safety deposit box in the bank. And and something of high value, we make sure that it's protected, it's contained, it's, it's packaged in such a right way. And this woman brings before Jesus an alabaster box. This is an important type of box because it is made of stone. Alabaster stone is the same kind of stone that they used to build Solomon's temple. So, what this woman was doing was that she was bringing to Jesus, who, by the way, is the representation of God on earth, of the the temple and the the earth meeting together in in the place of God. And so, Jesus, as this, this place of worship, this temple of God, she is bringing this stone that was made in the literal temple. And here's what she does she breaks open this stone box and she begins to pour it all out at the feet of Jesus. Now an alabaster box was a single-use box. It was sealed with a wax seal to keep in the contents. The, The precious ointment was kept in there with a wax seal. But once the wax seal was compromised, very quickly the contains on the inside would start to go bad. Within days it would be no good. And so, being a single use box, we see what she does is with reckless abandon, she pours all the oil out in this act of worship that probably just takes place over a few moments, but she pours all of it out before God, all of it out to the feet of Jesus. But then something else breaks. You know what else breaks? The box breaks first, but then the scriptures tell us that from her knees and weeping out of her eyes break something on the inside of her that now a fragrant oil, a fragrant sacrifice, her tears start coming down and she takes the very hair of her head and she is washing Jesus' feet with the oil and with her tears, drying them with her hair. It is a beautiful display of worship, yet I could tell you, if I were sitting at that dinner party, I would probably look and say, that—that that, I don't know, there's something unsettling about this act. Something unsettling about what this woman is doing. I've never seen worship like that before. Never seen anybody, so, so just extravagantly display this kind of service to another person, to another individual. And it says in the scriptures that she waited until the opportune time, when Jesus was seated at the table, she waited until the right time to bring her worship. And here's what I take away from what she did, is that she poured out and she used it all up. She poured out her worship before God and she used everything that she had, I believe that she probably cried and cried and cried until there were no more tears. Have you ever done that? You feel like you you could cry again, but there's just nothing else to give. There's no more tears in your ducts to, to let go. And this was the kind of setting that we see at this dinner party. And I wonder how that relates to us in worship. If you knew without a shadow of a doubt that this would be the last time you would ever be in a congregation assembly, ever be in a place of worship, ever in a place to be able to pour out your ointment, your your praise, your worship to God? Would you hold some back? Would you put a little in reserve? Or would you, like this woman, say, it's a single-use vessel. There's no other container. There's nothing else I can ever use it for. I might as well just pour it all out before God today. I would to God that some of us would get such a burning desire on the inside that we, like the psalmist, would say, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go up into the house of the Lord. Let us go to the place of praise. Let us go to our house where we worship the living and the only wise God. I may never get an opportunity like this before. See, you don't have to be diagnosed with a deadly disease or on your deathbed to realize that it may be your last chance to worship. None of us know when our last day of worship will be because none of us know the last day on this earth will be. You can be healthy and have everything going for you. And there have been many people who have checked out in that kind of status. You may be well advanced in years, aches and pains galore, not ever feeling like you really can, can muster up enough strength even to come down to an altar, much less to pour it all out before God. But there will come a day when it is your last opportune time to worship. Why don't we just, every chance we get, come before God with extravagant worship, laying it all out before him. You know, it's interesting The services that get talked about the most after service are usually the ones where those talking about the service engaged the most within the service. When, When you've come down to the altar and something has stirred your heart, a song has touched you, then you have resonated with it. And here's what I find about worship teams is that they praise and they worship and they sing a whole lot better when you get excited about it. When you clap your hands, when you lift up a hand, when you say amen, when you kind of urge them on, listen, it's the same way with preaching. If you amen me, I'll get done a whole lot faster because <laughs> they're getting it. Okay, Lord, I don't have to do that point again. Amen. But if you don't amen me, I'll just go back to point number one because I didn't think you got it. <laughs> See, that's what happens in worship. You start encouraging them. You start letting them know, yes, something has connected. Yes, what you're singing is, is hitting my heart. I am feeling I'm experiencing what you're saying. And when we worship God, we bring to him all of our lives. We serve him with our minds. We serve him with our bodies. We serve him with everything that we have. But Jesus not only taught, because teaching is good, but demonstration is better. He demonstrated for them something. Look at verse 40. It says... And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, now we know the Pharisee's name. Simon, I have something to say to you. (laughs) How would you like to be on the other end of Jesus saying, I have something to say to you. I have a bone to pick with you. So he said, teacher, say it. Verse 41, there was a certain creditor. Now this is a parable. Jesus is launching into a parable. I've told you before that a parable is like a time-release capsule. You take it into your body, and at the right time, the medicine comes out. And so a parable is, is going to come alive in the mind of a hearer just exactly at the right time. And so Jesus tells this, this parable. It's a quick, easy parable. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii. Say 500. 500 denarii. The other owed him 50 denarii. Say 50. I'm not real great at math, okay, but 500 denarii is exponentially larger than 50, right? Okay, Jesus is making a point. He's he's punctuating a point. Verse 42, and when they had nothing with which to pay, both of them had a debt, neither one of them could pay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Which of the two men will love the creditor more? The one that was forgiven 500 or the one that's forgiven 50? Simon answered and said, I suppose <laughs> he's, he, he knows he's about to get caught in a trap here, okay? He knows, uh-oh, my gig is up. Jesus found my number. He says, well, I suppose the one he forgave more. And Jesus said, you have rightly judged. He, he complimented him, pat him on the back. Simon, you are pretty good at math. Yes, the one that gets forgiven a 500 denarii debt is going to be more thankful, more grateful than the one that is forgiving, forgiven 50 amount of debt. Now, Simon the Pharisee could solve practical problems. He could solve and, and logically reason mathematics. But he had an issue when it came to principally dealing with real life situations which deal with people. You know, there's a thing in our faith called orthodoxy. It means you believe the right things. If you're an orthodox Christian, you believe what God's word has said. And so we know the laws, we know the commandments, we know grace, we know mercy, we believe the right things. But I'm gonna to submit to you this morning that believing the right things is not enough. Though important as it is, it is not enough. Because there is another word that we use around theological circles, which is orthopraxy, which means you practice the right things. You see, the Pharisee was orthodox. He knew all the right things. He could readily quote you the scriptures. He knew the rules and the measurements and the regulations and the do's and the don'ts. He knew all of that. From a head knowledge, he had the faith, but he was devoid of something in the heart. His orthopraxy did not allow him to do the more weighty things of the law, which Jesus defines as justice and mercy and love and peace and forgiveness and unity, togetherness. His orthodoxy was right. His orthopraxy was off. So now Jesus both teaches them and shows them. Verse 44. Then he turned to the woman. Now get the picture. They're at a dinner party. Jesus just took Simon to the woodshed, just told him this parable. Then he looks to the woman, but he speaks to Simon. So therefore, it tells me that Simon must have been pretty close to Jesus. If he was the master of the house, he was at the head of the table, Jesus was probably, as his honored guest, he was right next to Jesus. And Jesus looks down to this woman, and he says to Simon, do you see this woman? Of course, Simon had already reasoned in his mind. If Jesus knew what kind of woman this was, he'd already seen the woman. But Jesus makes him identify. Jesus makes him notice and take notice before the whole table what is happening. Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased kissing my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil. See, these were all customs of their day. When someone would come into your house, you would greet them with a holy kiss. You would anoint their head with oil. You would, you would give them something to wash their feet. You may wash their feet because it was dusty out there. They didn't have the kind of paved roads we had. So Jesus is illustrating for him, and he's calling Peter, he's calling Simon to task for the things he didn't do. He neglected to do some things, but this woman has anointed my feet. With fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, Jesus doesn't minimize the fact that this woman got herself in a whole lot of trouble in life, but they're forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Now, how do you think that that hits Simon? What Jesus is saying is Simon, you're unthankful, you're ungrateful, you're not nice. You're kind of mean because your self-righteousness makes you feel as though you have earned a seating at this table. Your good deeds makes you feel as though you are justified in your title and in your position and being the head of this synagogue. You don't have a great capacity to forgive because you don't believe that God has had to forgive you very much. There's a hubris, there's a pride that Jesus is exposing in Simon, the Pharisee, Because Jesus took a side to be the friend of the sinner. Who everybody at the dinner party thought would be the hero of the story, would be the prominent person at the dinner, would be either Jesus or maybe Simon, the master of the house. But Jesus makes this sinner woman the hero of the story. This woman demonstrates a parable of real life. At the very house of the Pharisee, who is by trade a teacher, the chief teacher of the synagogue, he becomes the pupil, the student, the one under the tutelage of Jesus. And Jesus once again turns the tables and does something that is beyond their imagination, Later on in the book of Acts, we see that the apostles have this this dilemma about whether new Christians need to come in and be circumcised or not. In order to be Christian, do you have to be Jewish first to be Christian? And and they're really wrangling this thing. They don't know how to really settle it. But finally, the, the wise apostles stand up and say, Listen, guys, we don't need to make it harder for those who are coming to God. They don't need to go through all these rites and rituals and clean themselves up on the outside first. Just if God's activating faith in their heart, let them. Walk in the new light that God has shown them. And I think that's the same for us today. We don't need to make it hard for people who are coming to God. A list of do's and don'ts on our door saying, you can come here as long as you vote like this, and you walk like this, and you think like this, and you talk like this, and you dress like that. No, we don't need any of that stuff. Let God do the work on the inside. I just trust the Holy Ghost enough to to clean the fish. Listen, he told me you are to be a fisher of men, not a cleaner of fish. And I'm glad about it. Because all of my intellect, all of my teaching, all of my preaching, all of my contortion to try to make somebody live right can never make a heart that is devoid of God's love live right. Can they put it on on the outside? Yeah, for a season. Can they fool the pastor for a long time? I can't even see what they're doing. But nobody fools God. Listen, it ain't good English, but it's good preaching. Ain't nobody getting away with nothing. God keeps good records. Let's trust him. Let's trust him. Let's see what happens with life change when we leave it in the hands of the master. Jesus can do it. See, her love paved the way for what she really needed most, which was forgiveness. Luke 7, uh, 47, it says, Therefore I say to you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Verse 48, Then he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Notice, Jesus seemingly forgives her sins even before she asks. Because you and I don't even really know what we need. We think we do. But we don't really know. And Jesus really knew that what she needed was forgiveness of sin. She may have had other ailments. She may have had other things in her life. But Jesus forgave her sin. Verse 49, it says, And those who sat at the table began to say to themselves, Who is this that even forgives sins? They had a little table talk here. Who is this guy? And this whole episode ends rather abruptly with Jesus saying these words in verse 50. Then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus turns all the attention to the only one not invited to the party. Jesus turns all of his attention. The entire table now has to look as Jesus dignifies, notices, and actually commends the sinner woman. The sinner woman whose name we don't even know gets the honorable mention by Jesus. And here's my final point. They're going to come and sing. All of us need saved. We all need saved. The word saved here in this text isn't some escape word getting you out of hell. See, we we think of saved as, oh, I want to be saved so that I don't face God's wrath. Yeah, you need that too. That's important. There's a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. Yeah, you need that. We want to be saved from God's wrath. But the word here is sozo. In the Greek, the word is sozo, which means healed, cured, preserved, rescued from danger. What Jesus said directly to this woman, he also said to the benefit of everyone at that dinner party, and by extension says it to all of us right now today, is that we all need saved. We all need healed. We all need cured. We all need preserved. There's something that ails every one of us. There is something, doesn't matter how many times you have made a trip down the altar to say yes to Jesus, to to give a burden to him, there will be another encounter in life that will trip you up, that you you will be perplexed by. There will be something else in life that will cause a heaviness on your heart. And here's what Jesus says, your faith, who you put your trust in, where you give your allegiance and your worship, that is what will cure you. That is what will save you. Pastor, do you think we shouldn't go to counselors? Go to a counselor, go to a good Christian counselor. I had a broken arm, I would go to a doctor and have it set right again. If I have emotional turmoil, uh, a, a, a burden in my heart of grief, then I'll go to a counselor. But listen, Jesus is the great counselor. He is the great physician. And every one of us need healed.